Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Himalaya. Hey, Justin. You know what? I think it's time for us to learn a few lessons in parenting. I've often felt that way, uh, that my co-parent would tell me that's a little more direct than I expected. But you're right. You know, it turns out economics has a lot to teach us about parenting. And today on Think Like an Economist, we have one of the world's experts, not just on economics. But on parenting. And so I'm super excited that today we're going to welcome Emily Oster to the show. She's one of the most interesting economists I know. And I was really excited that she agreed to come on Think Like an Economist because she has written three great books that help parents use the tools of economics to make better parenting decisions. And it's not just directly important. It's a great way of flexing those economic muscles and seeing that the principles we've learned through this podcast can be used in your daily life as a parent. And in just about any other role you play as well. Emily Oster is a full professor of economics at Brown University and has one of the most interesting and diverse portfolios of any economist on the planet. I'm thrilled she's here to talk with me, Betsy Stevenson. And I'm Justin Wolfers. On today's episode of Think Like an Economist. Emily, it's my pleasure to welcome you to Think Like an Economist. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Emily, I remember talking to you when I was first expecting and talking about how I was really having a hard time navigating the advice I was getting. I'm guessing that was your experience, too. Yeah, it was. I think that the experience a lot of us have that you are used to having a tremendous amount of autonomy and decision making and time to take to sort of think about the advice you're getting. And pregnancy felt a lot like being bossed around and relatively little, like I was being asked to make decisions on my own, even though they felt like decisions that both were very important and also that I could engage with, with some of the tools of data and statistics and and economics that I was used to using at my job. So can you give me an example of a decision that you think you were better able to make using your tools as an economist than what you were you know, told or advised to do by medical professionals? Yeah. So I think for me, the, the place this really started was in decisions about prenatal testing. So when I got pregnant, there were a set of what I viewed as sort of very arbitrary guidelines around prenatal testing, which said that women over the age of 35 should have one procedure and women under the age of 35 should have another procedure. And generally, you know, as economists, we would not think that a good decision-making would be so bifurcated like that around something like age, which is pretty continuous. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about that and turned out there's kind of two things that were missing from that calculus. One was the data underlying the risks of these procedures was very old and very poorly understood. And so some of what I was doing with my economics training is digging into the data piece of it. But then there was the other side, which is that in economics, we spend a huge amount of time trading off costs and benefits and thinking about 
sort of the role of preferences along with data. And in this particular example, the guideline of over 35, under 35 was based on effectively assuming everybody had exactly the same preferences about the sort of relative risk for these things, which seemed very unrealistic. So for both of those reasons, that decision was much better approached, at least in my view, by using some decision theory and and some data analysis rather than just taking this arbitrary age cutoff as gospel. It sounds like you're talking about the decision about whether to get an amniocentesis. Yeah, so it was. it's more than that. So there was a set of decisions about whether to get an amniocentesis, whether to get a CVS test, which is a different thing, or whether to get some other kinds of screening, which provide some information, but less good information. So there's actually a sort of a suite of things that one chooses between. One of the things that really struck me with that is that there, all of those procedures have a risk associated with them, yet no one really asked you what would you conceive the benefit of being. As you said, they, they thought about that your age, but what would you do with the information? How would it make things different for you, which would surely inform the benefit, which would help you figure out how to trade off the risk? And I found that completely absent as well. Yeah, I sort of started with that because in some ways that was the most surprising to me because it felt so much like, okay, a huge, hugely important part of this decision is how valuable is this information? If I'm not interested in the information, if it wouldn't be at all decision relevant, I don't know why I would get it at any risk. Whereas for some people, and I was in this camp, that information was really valuable that I would have changed a lot of things that I was going to do as a result of having different information and knowing which camp you're in, how much this information matters, how much it would change your decision seems like almost the first thing and certainly not something that should be completely ignored. And so for our listeners, the superpower it sounds like you were using is what we call the cost-benefit principle. And your argument seems to be that that's a more central principle to economics than it is to medicine. I think that's right. I mean, I think that there is a cost-benefit principle that underlies a lot of things in medicine, but there are also many places where we have kind of gotten to some kind of rule of thumb, which maybe is based on a cost-benefit principle, but it's based on a kind of average cost-benefit trade-off or like a you know cost-benefit trade-off for the average person. And since there could be heterogeneity across people, it's not obvious that would make the right decision for every person. So I, I think it is also certainly the case that we spend a lot more time on cost-benefit trade-offs in economics than you do in medicine, at least in terms of the training. So ultimately, you gave birth not just to a beautiful baby, but also a beautiful book. And your book, Expecting Better, is the first thing that Betsy and I as fellow economists give any of our friends when they get pregnant, because we want them to be able to think about these decisions using ideas like risk and uncertainty, costs and benefits and the like. How was the book received, not by your fellow economists, we're a pretty easy sell, there are a fair few people who might think that economics doesn't really or shouldn't really have much to say about women and children's health? It's interesting you say that. So I actually think if I think about the the reception of the book, I would say that that at least initially, probably the worst reception was from economists, because I think it was a little complicated to be a person who was trying to be a professional economist and also writing this book, which is sort of written for a lay audience about pregnancy. You know, and I think from from pregnant women, much of the reaction was was very good. I think there was some, you know, some demand for this idea of thinking of pregnant women as people who can make their own decisions and who can actually engage with the data. But certainly early on, especially, I did get some pushback from from doctors in the kind of space of like, who, who are you? You're not a doctor. Like, you're just some economist. What are you bringing to this? 
I think over time I've managed to convert some of those people, but I don't know. It's been a while. Emily, I, I wanted to start at the very beginning of your career. And in fact, I'm going to start the beginning of your career all the way back to in utero because you're the child of, of two economists. And you yourself as a child um, were the focus of academic study. And I'm wondering how you think all of that shaped who you became as an adult and who you are, you know, your path in economics. Part of what I gained from having parents who are economists is that I knew what economics was. So that was valuable. <laughs> and I think that, you know, not, not everybody does. And so I think I knew this, you know, I knew this was a job. And I always really liked data. So the fact that I become an economist who's kind of primarily data focused, I think, isn't, isn't too surprising because that was something I loved, you know, even as a you know, relatively young kid. And I've always sort of liked doing research. So I think all of those pieces, how much were they influenced by my parents and how much are they, are they genetic? It's always hard to, to sort of pull things together like that. I guess one thing I will say is that my mother is a really gifted teacher and a person whose understanding of basic economic concepts is really, really very deep. And that let her convey many of those concepts to us while we were in our sort of the course of our regular life. And so I think part of what has made me good at using those economic tools to help people make decisions in their life is that I kind of grew up with somebody doing that all the time. One of the reasons it was important to me that we talk about this with you is because, you know, a lot of economists, but not all economists, really do use the tools of economics to make decisions in their daily life. And it had struck me that that was sort of how you were raised. So, you know, raised to make decisions like an economist. But I also, you know, your questions from the very beginning of your research career have always been much broader than the questions economists typically ask. What's driven how you figure out what question you want to ask in your research? You know, I think I've always just asked questions that I found interesting and been sort of pretty agnostic about, um, unstrategic agnostic, I'm not sure what, what the word is really for there, about whether they sort of fit into the stuff that I was that I was doing. And so I think that's been really freeing. And it's part of why I love doing research. I think part of what's hard about, sometimes hard about being an academic is that it is very self-driven. You really need to love doing it because you, you fail a lot and people tell you work is garbage and the referee too is the worst. And it has to be the case that you love the activity of, of doing it. And the thing that helps me, that has made me love the activity of doing it is that I get to work on this stuff that I think is interesting, even if that's all kind of occasionally a little bit all over the place. Let's fast forward to more recently, because you really plunged yourself into trying to understand the risks to kids of COVID and how parents could really think about costs and benefits when they were making decisions about how to navigate the pandemic and the risks of COVID for their kids. I got involved in this initially because I had started doing some writing through a newsletter of all things for parents. And, and the intention was to really write about the things that I write about in my book. So really, you know, parenting and, and pregnancy. But I, I happened to have started the newsletter right around the time that the COVID pandemic started. And I then sort of pivoted a little bit to really responding to a lot of the questions I was getting from parents, which were about how to navigate decision making in the world of COVID. So how to think about questions like, should I send my kid back to childcare when it's available? Should I see my grandparents? How should I think about the risk to my kids, the risk to older people? And like a huge amount of that early on work that I was doing in the pandemic was really about kind of decision tools 
and helping people think about how to trade off costs and benefits because I think it's often one thing to tell people, oh, trade the costs and benefits, like think about the costs and benefits. But it is easier to do that if you have more scaffolding around, well, what does that actually mean? What are those costs and benefits, but also how can I put them together and how can I kind of have a structure to make good decisions? And then I, part of the sets of things people really wanted to understand was like, okay, great. I want to trade the costs and benefits, but I don't know the disease risks. I don't actually understand the data around these questions. So how can I think about whether to send my kid back to school if I have no idea if school is a place where a lot of people are going to get COVID? And that pivoted me into doing some actual data collection around COVID in schools, which wasn't really being done by, by others. And ultimately, I think playing somewhat more of an advocacy role around the idea that we should have opened schools more and that we should continue to keep them open. Emily, you just said we collected some data. I fear you're being a little modest here. So tell us a little more about the data that you collected and and the scale of the effort. We started in a way that I thought was very simple, which was to try to get as much information as we could from schools and school districts in the U.S. about their reopening plans, how many students and teachers they had back in the classroom. And this was, you know, back in the fall of 2020. And then to track their COVID cases over time. And sort of through a combination of our efforts, the sort of individual schools and districts we were working with, and working with states to get the data that they were, in some cases, collecting systematically, we were able to build this public-facing dashboard, which we kept updated over the whole school year. And by the end, was, you know, reporting out data on 12 million enrolled students, which is, you know, something like, I don't know, like a little more than 20% of the whole U.S. population in that group. So it ended up being a, a reasonably large data effort. And you described yourself a moment ago as you said you went from doing research to advocacy around these issues. It seems like a very complicated line. I was surprised you used that description. Where does analysis end and advocacy begin? You know, I've grappled with this a lot over the last year because, you know, if you sort of started me at the beginning of the pandemic and you said your goal in this pandemic is to write sort of a definitive research on how much COVID is spread in schools, doing that would require a particular approach where you'd probably take a relatively small sample of schools and you would study them really intensively and try to look at how, you know, when there was a case in the school, do really careful contact tracing and try to kind of really dig into who is spreading to who and how much spread is there and so on. And there actually were researchers that did that, but it took months and months and months and months to get that data. And what we were trying to do, I was not thinking about it explicitly as research. It was really about sort of public service data collection, where we were getting information from schools about how many COVID cases they had, but not following up in this sort of super detailed way. But I I thought at the time, and I continue to think that there was something incredibly valuable about having any information Because at the moment we were starting doing this, there was no information. And it was a time in which schools had to decide about whether they should be open. And there were real consequences of of not being open. So it felt very different than some of the timescales that we do our research on, much more like we need the answer to this question now. Let's do what we can to get a good answer to this as quickly as possible or the best answer we can get in the time frame that we have available. And so that felt valuable in many ways to me, but it's also really different than doing research, even though it has many of the same tools. So it's sort of a complicated space to navigate. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. 
Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I want to take you where this research went, which is ultimately it led you to believe that we should be more aggressive about reopening schools. That's a reasonable summary? Absolutely. That's correct. And so that was a conclusion you weren't shy about, and it put you very much in the public eye. And I've been involved in a fair number of economic debates in my time, but I don't think I've ever seen another economist receive as much vitriol as I saw you endure through that period. I just want to know, like, what did it feel like to be in the eye of the storm? How did you deal with it? How do you maintain your bearings at a time like that? When people yell at you, it feels terrible. Um, and I think even the people with the sort of the thickest skins still feel bad. And I don't, I think I have a thicker skin than I did 18 months ago, but it's, it's not that thick. In those moments, really, most of what you can say is like, boy, I'm really glad that I have a spouse and kids that I like. <laughs> I mean, it's true, like, because I think that we see this in, in research on sort of how kids deal with bullying and how, what makes you a kid who is resilient to bullying and the answer is sort of in part, like having a place to go, having a family that is kind of there to, to scaffold you. And so I think when you spend the entire day, I mean, people send you emails that, so someone sent the, an email to the president of my university and the provost and my department chair and me saying, you know, you're, the university should now have a department of genocide studies, which should be headed by this person, right? And so when you have, when you have that day, it's actually like the, sort of the only thing you can do is go home and have your kids be like, yeah. I had a good day and, you know, I got, I did well on my test and this person was nice to me and, you know, have your spouse be like, well, I'm not on Twitter and it doesn't sound great, but like, I like you. <laughs> so, I mean, I do think that was sort of all, it was a very hard time. And I think I really relied on, on the kind of family being totally separate from it. I think just to be clear, Justin described you as having a position. I think throughout the whole thing, what you were trying to do is take the tools of economics, which is... How do we break things down on the margin and think about marginal benefits at marginal costs? How do we then figure out what those costs are, including opportunity costs, and you know, put it all together in a way that parents might have come to different decisions, but it was clear that the risk of kids in school was lower than a lot of people were thinking. I think the problem is people who came to it with a preconceived idea that their kids needed to stay home, and then they were angry at you for giving them a way of thinking about it, which maybe they would come to a different conclusion, and they didn't know how to process that. Yeah, I think that was I think that was a piece of it. I mean, the other way I ended up processing a lot of it was it was a lot of fear among both parents and and school staff, and it was very hard almost to accept the idea that like okay, we stayed at home all this time, and like now I'm going to go into this classroom, and we know that kids give each other illnesses. Like that's one of the things you know about being a parent is when your kid first goes to, to childcare, they come home with a cold. And it's actually, I think, been very hard for people still to kind of shift to 
to really understanding like the the sort of age pattern of of COVID is just not like the age pattern of the flu or these other or these other things for reasons that I don't think are super well understood. And so the result is that schools were way less sources of spread than actually even I had I had been pretty optimistic. But it was actually the sort of circumstances in the fall of 2020 were better than I had expected them to be. One of the more striking conversations I had during the last year was sometime in maybe November. I talked to a superintendent in North Dakota, which at the time had, you know, an enormously bad outbreak. It was like by far the worst place in the U.S. And, you know, his schools had been open full time in person for the entire fall. And I said, you know, are you going to close? And he said, well, you know, we haven't really seen any spread in school even though the case rates are incredibly high, we're just not seeing it in school. And so we're just going to stay open basically until we have to close for staffing reasons. And eventually they, you know, they had to close for a couple of weeks. But I think as a result of like spread that happened at family gatherings over Thanksgiving. And so that was striking to me because it felt like, boy, this is a place where if you're going to pick somewhere to say, you know, there's like full non-distance, like fully dense in-person learning in the high school in North Dakota in the middle of the biggest outbreak, if that guy's saying we're really not seeing a lot of spread in schools, that was telling. So like you, both Betsy and I were somewhat active during the pandemic in trying to give policy advice. One of my great fears was that I was giving the advice that I wanted to hear rather than the advice that was analytically justified. Did you have a similar fear? And if so, how did you deal with it? Definitely. I mean, I particularly had that fear in the summer of 2020 because of course, I, I wanted my kids to go back to school. And so in some sense, it was good that by the time we got the data, my kids were already at school. So it was a little bit like, okay, well, I like already accomplished you know that piece of it. But I think it is impossible not to grapple with that and feel like, okay, how am I going to be to sort of be be honest here when unlike in almost all of my other research, actually, you know, something that could affect the functioning of my family or could affect my kids is sort of riding on some of the research. I will say, there's a sort of flip side of that, which is that I think some of what made me so willing to put up with some of this vitriol and sort of keep collecting this data and put all this time into this was that I saw what happened with my kids in the spring of 2020. And, you know, we are a family with a tremendous amount of resources and people who could work from home and childcare help. And still the sort of being home in the spring of 2020 was really, really, really hard on my kids. And there's a moment of realizing if that's true for my kids, like imagine what this is like for other kids who do not have these advantages. And I think that sort of thinking about that pushed a lot of this, like, you know, we need to figure out how we can, if it is possible to do this safely and, and you know, how we can, how we can do it. Emily, one of the things that I worry a lot about is that economists, pretty good economists who work on education, we've spent a lot of time trying to say, well, we can evaluate schools by measuring how kids do on certain tests and looking at test scores. And so now we're going to see uh, what was the effect of the pandemic on kids by looking at what happened to their test scores. But when you talk to parents about the effect of the pandemic on their kids, the learning and test scores is not usually the first thing they want to talk about. It's the isolation, the anxiety the developmental, social, emotional developmental issues that seem to be at the forefront. And I guess I'm wondering if you've thought about that, if you agree with that, and then also how do you think economists would go about trying to assess that? He's exactly right. You know, I think the test score stuff is, is easier to measure, and I think we will see data on that 
pretty soon, or at least at, at some point. But I also think all of these other things are much more front of mind. And I think they are things that we can measure, at least in some sort of extreme senses, right? So things like depression, anxiety, and and sort of mental health diagnoses and prescriptions for um, medications to deal with those issues. Those are all things that we can, you know, in principle see in the data. And I think we will see people start analyzing that. I think it will be extremely important to try to continue these sort of follow-ups over time and to try to understand, you know, is this a short-term impact? Are these longer-term impacts? You know, how we say the kids are resilient. I believe the kids are resilient, but, you know, are they going to need more scaffolding, not just for three months or six months, but, you know, maybe for, for a longer period than that? Emily, one of the things I hope that the listeners of Think Like an Economist get is not just an understanding of economics, but the ability and willingness to use those tools in whatever leadership roles they play in their own communities. That's exactly what you've been doing. So would you mind just sort of stepping back and do you have advice for our listeners on how they can use the economic tools that you and I love to show this sort of leadership in their communities? Some piece of it is about kind of making sure that you have good data and that you're sort of thinking about how to translate that data in a way that is understandable. I think you know, in some sense, if I think about what I bring to the table and a lot of the work that I do, it is really a translation role. So there's a lot of kind of, it's not enough to just have the data. You actually need people to, to engage and understand what you are showing them. And that's different from like lying with statistics, but, but there's a piece of, you know, just showing people your raw data is actually not so helpful. And sort of, if you are a person who is in a position to, to engage with the data, with the independent research, how can you take that and then kind of make sure that it is as useful as possible for people for whom the like engagement with the raw data is maybe less facile? I want to delve a little bit again into the personal. It's no secret that economics is a male-dominated field. And I was hoping you could reflect a little on what it's like to uh, be an economist while female. I think when you when you are in an environment in which there are men all, you know, being a woman in a male-dominated environment like this, you you kind of get used to some things. And there are occasionally moments when I, when I will sort of reflect on like, oh, actually, like that probably wasn't okay. Um, but sort of in the, in the moment, um, it didn't, you know, it doesn't seem like too big a deal. And I think, you know, part of it is I've been very lucky and I haven't had any particularly terrible gender type experiences um, in the profession, at least not very direct ones. But, you know, I think there are opportunities that we have to try to make this better for the next generation. And I guess that's that's a lot of what I what I think about. So, you know, people say a lot of, you know, sexist stuff. And I sometimes not just economists, just, you know, people in general. And I I think sometimes about, you know, what are the circumstances in which I want to publicly respond as opposed to just kind of ignore it because, you know, I'm very lucky and I feel like I've succeeded and I actually don't need to respond to all of those things. And and I have found that the places that I respond or when there is someone more junior who will see that response because I want the women who are more junior to me to understand that like that kind of behavior is not okay. Even if there are times in which individually I'd rather just let it go than kind of engage with it. I hear you so deeply on that because, you know, in trying to figure out where your responsibilities lie and, you know, making sure things are better for the next generation. And I, I have to say, I've watched like, you know, young female economists in their 20s, PhD students who are just much more aggressive about calling things out and demanding better. Do you feel, I mean, I, maybe you don't feel this. I feel in some ways I feel a little ashamed that like I, I just, maybe I should have been doing more of that. Yeah, I know. That's how I feel. Like, oh, yes. 
Why didn't I just you Maybe that wasn't okay when they said those things. You know, I should have said I should have said something. <laughs> right. I know that it's that my own fear of the consequences. You know, absolutely. I, I know it's not it's partly just not, you know, not having wanted to be brave and just want to say like, "Okay, I'll just let it go and like, you know, later once I like I'll fit in and, you know, once I've made it, I'll I'll do these things." But but then they're doing it now and I think, "Oh, I guess maybe that was an option." Right. But you've done some super brave things in your career. And I, I have to say, when you wrote Expecting Better, I thought that was a very brave thing to do. Not just because it was a popular book, which was super brave to do at that stage of your career, but because it was a very gendered popular book. Right. If you if it had been a book about golf, I could imagine. Totally fine. Yeah. Everyone would be like, oh, yeah, book about golf. Super Who interesting. Yeah. Super uh, interesting. So economics yeah. and golf. Yeah. But at the moment, it's a book about vaginas. It's like, forget <laughs> Emily Oster, I could talk economics with you all day and you've been so generous with your time. Let's have one question. Our listeners are here to learn how to think like an economist. We don't all have the 20 years to study the field that you and I have had. So what advice have you got for them? Always think carefully about framing your question before you think about the costs and benefits. That when you want to think like an economist, the cost-benefit principle is really important, but you want to make sure you understand what you're, what you're trading off between so you can do the cost-benefits right. That's a brilliant answer. That's a great answer. There you go. You have framed things perfectly for us, Emily. Let me just say thank you for your time. Thank you guys for having me. It was great talking with you today. Thank you, Emily. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.